you are complete just as you are right now. I am not broken. There is nothing wrong with me. I just didn't get the tools to have healthy relationships because my parents didn't model that for me. Hello, and welcome to Reclaim Your Radiance, a podcast where we discuss the most intimate parts of the human experience. Let's take a deep dive into self-love, sexual pleasure, and absolutely everything in between. I'm your host, Chris Hall, and each week we will be joined by one fabulous friend, and sometimes that friend will just be me, to talk about how we can all become our most radiant selves. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Today, I'm speaking with Brianne Davis, a woman with 20 years of Hollywood experience. She is a writer, an actress, a podcaster, a wife, a mother, and a recovering sex and love addict. She recently released a novel titled The Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, in which she writes a memoir from a fictional character's perspective that is meant to shed some light on these little-known and seldom-discussed addictions and offer steps and resources to help others identify their own patterns and seek help if needed. I am so excited for you to listen in as her story is both brave and inspiring. And on an unrelated note, if you're thinking, holy cow, what happened to her voice? Well, uh, that's the flu for you. And don't worry, my voice will sound normal and no longer sound like a wounded cat again in three, two, one. Hey, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm great. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I was, I was really, I was so happy and very honored that you said yes. I think like you're just, everything I read about you is just so impressive and you've had such a, like a full body of experience and yeah, I know. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, that's the sweetest thing. Thank you. You know, I try to always open myself up and be vulnerable and raw in everything I've been through, all the hardship and even the personal growth and finding myself and everything. So getting the opportunity to share it with you and your listeners, I'm, I'm honored. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And where are you, where are you coming, coming to me from today? Are you in Los Angeles? Okay. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) So are you still kind of very involved in the Hollywood community then? Yeah, I'm still a working actor. You know, when you're a working actor for 25 years, I'm constantly auditioning. I'm constantly going up for parts. I'm constantly getting rejected and, you know, trying to survive it. I call it the Hollywood concrete jungle. Um, but on top of that, doing the podcast, Secret Life, do writing the book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Attic, and writing the second book now, the follow-up to it. So when you're an actor, you have to do more than act or you'll go insane. So if anybody out there wants to be an actor, please have other hobbies and goals because it will not sustain you. That is, that is a really, really good point. Cause I think there's a lot of people who think that that's yeah. be like full sustainer and people who think like, Oh, this is my passion and that's all I'm going to do. But there's a lot more to it. It sure. is. It's constant rejection, constantly going in and telling you're not good enough. You don't look a certain way. I mean, run the gamut, you hear it. And then on top of it, you're always waiting around for other people to choose you. And that's why I've directed two movies, produced three movies, 
You know, you have to have other avenues for your creativity or you get completely burned out. Unless you're like the one percenter like Jennifer Lopez or something where you have it all handed to you. But when you're a working everyday actor, like pounding the pavement, yeah, you got you got to do more than just that. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a great perspective. So it sounds like you have to find avenues where you get to choose yourself, right? You get to be the one who's in the driver's seat who says, I'm choosing myself. I'm doing this for me. So what would be your, your best advice for somebody like stepping out into something very, like not necessarily an actress or actor, but like a very public role where they're just going to be seen all the time. And like, yeah, you have to go through that. Like people need to choose you. Yeah. You know, I think the number one thing I say is don't look for your validation on the outside, you know, being in recovery for sex and love addiction for 12 years you know, being in the business for 25 years, I entered the business looking for it to complete me or fill me or give me my self-worth. And you can't enter any relationship, whether it be work, career, you know, a person, friendships, you cannot enter anything with you wanting to be filled and completed. So the number one thing is you have to like do that inner work on yourself for your self-worth before looking outside. Absolutely. Well said. So, (laughs) so your, your book then, and that, that journey, I'm like, even like I've, I've heard of sex addict, but I don't know that I've ever heard Mm. of the term love addict before. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that so many people have never heard of it and it's been around since the early seventies and, you know, it's a 12 step program, sex and love addicts anonymous that I'm a part of for the last 12 years. And The sex addict, everybody thinks a man getting caught cheating, you know, on his wife, going to rehab, then he's better. And the thing is, it's like our society amplifies sex and love addiction. It amplifies, you know, using your sexuality as a currency to get something to manipulate and control men and women do it. And any any gender, that's the beautiful thing. Anybody does it. Because our society says it's okay. And then the love addict side of it is that our society even pushes, you need to be looking for your soulmate. You need to buy this dress so someone will love you. And it's constantly chasing that fantasy, you know, intriguing, flirting, getting that person, toxic relationships, getting that unavailable person to love you. It's that side that nobody talks about. And a huge one is like destination fantasy. Once you get that person, once you get that thing, once you go on that trip, that location, you will be like saved. And it's just, it's like this constant battle that our whole society is fighting right now. Yeah, no, I totally, I feel that in, mm-hmm. especially when it's like, oh, when I get this haircut, when I get this yeah. piercing, when I get this tattoo, when I change this thing about my life, when I get this piece of clothing, I'm, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be this. And you see yourself as something different. There's this, yeah, there's this destination that you're like looking at. And every time you get that, nothing changes. You're still you, you still look the same. Yeah. It's you're still just, it's so funny though. I worked with somebody literally because I work with A-list clients that don't want to go into sex and love addicts anonymous. And I've been doing it for a while now. I, I, it's a, like a private coaching thing with them to help them with this addiction because they don't want to walk in the rooms and people see them. So I work with them and this one that I'm working with right now, she was like, I'm just going to move. There's better people like to date 
in Europe than the United States. And I was looking at going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, dating is really hard wherever you go. So, but if you want to move all the way to, you know, across the country, you can do that. Like, you know, but it's this thing that we believe if we get somewhere, if we get something, if we look a certain way, if we get that person that we are going to be complete and arrived and that's why there's so much suicide. There's so many people that go back to drugs and alcohol or even murder people that I know because they then get that thing and it's it's depleting. It doesn't fill you. Mm-hmm. It's like hot air. It doesn't mean anything. So that's why I spoke out you know, last year. That's why I wrote the book. It's because I was so sick of the narrative and watching society, especially young kids right now. That's one of the main reasons I watch all these 19 year olds, 20 year olds having trouble with intimacy, having trouble with commitment, always looking outside of themselves, attached to social media and that validation. Listen, it hits me too. I'm an adult and it hits me like those validations, those likes, someone flirting with you, you know, swiping left and right, constantly looking for that perfect person. And it's an epidemic for younger people right now. So that's why I spoke out. I was never going to break my anonymity in sex and love addiction ever. It wasn't a goal of mine. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally with you. It's, it's like, TikTok is scary. (laughs) I recently joined it and it's so scary. It's so scary. Like the amount of like external validation that everyone's seeking Mm -hmm. constantly. And it's, and it's, everybody seeks it a different way. And it's so hard to acknowledge that. Like it can be something as small as going to Starbucks and, you know, having that Starbucks cup in your hand makes you feel like, oh yes, once I have this Starbucks cup, I'm going to be a, a different class of person mm-hmm. and a different, it's, it's never going to happen. And it's always going to come. It's never. Me yeah. It, it really does. I think that's the thing after so much work, you know, I, did therapy for eight years, twice a week, you know, did my 12 steps. It took me nine years, really went through, I say it's walking through the fire and letting it all burn, like willing to let go of anything in my life, whether it be my career, my boyfriend, friends, guy friends, I had to let go of, I couldn't flirt. I couldn't intrigue. I didn't even look at male waiters because I realized I was constantly putting off that energy, like fill me, give me my worth. Tell me I I look nice, whatever it is, you know, walking down the street, getting that attention. And it was just so exhausting that that's the number one thing is like, if you find yourself reaching outside of yourself, whether it be a Starbucks thinking that one coffee is going to give you the jolt you need, then you need to stop because it gets worse and worse. It's such a progressive disease, especially when you snort people. I say drink and snort people. Like that's what I do. Oh, like an alcoholic drinks alcohol or a coke addict snort. Like I snort and drink people like, give me your energy. Give me your attention. And the moment that that high goes away or that like butterflies, if you, you know, the first love butterflies or that mm-hmm. attention, then I'm on to the next person. And it was just killing me. I, it was killing me. Wow. What was that moment like when you finally like got there and arrived at realizing what you were doing and that you were going to make a change and that you needed to make a change? Oh God, I had so, we call them bottoming moments, bottoming out moments. I had so many of those moments where they're like dark night of the soul where you're like, wait, I'm with this person and we're fighting constantly. And I actually don't even like them, but I'm like, want to sleep with them. You know, like I'm staying with them, but they're, they're horrible. 
you know, those moments where are you your friend, you know, that person, you're like, I'm never going to text them or talk to them again. And then you find yourself an hour later, a week later or whatever. So I had a lot of those moments. I think we all do. But I speak about a couple of them in my book, especially the first chapter is like, I was dating two people at the same time, um, which people do it all the time, but I got caught. And it was like a confronting of like, wait, I'm her boyfriend. No, I'm her boyfriend. And it's like, um, actually, I was kind of seeing you two at the same time. So that was one big moment. And the other one was I actually had a boyfriend I cared about and loved. And a mentor of mine passed away. And two days later, I was on set shooting across the country. And I found myself flirting again, like an intriguing with people I didn't even really like. And I felt myself, I'm like, what is going on? Like, I've been with this other person for four years. I really care about him. He's a great person. And here I am flirting. And it was just that moment, like, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Am I going to be searching for this magical quality person to complete me? And then the moment moment that they show their humanness or flaws, I like can't handle it. So I've had many of those moments, but that was the one that changed my life. And I just remember looking at myself in the mirror saying, I'm going to be doing this forever. Something is really wrong with me. It can't be all my partners. can't be like people around me. It's me. I'm the common denominator. So I, I reached out to a friend that I knew had a great therapist. um, And she said, when I went to the therapist, she said two things to me. And I write about this in the book in the first three chapters. I, she said, one of the things she said is you have a secret and I don't know what it is, but you wear the mask of a high-class prostitute. And I was like, what? Wow. There's nothing wrong with being a, yeah, there's, but there's nothing wrong with being a prostitute. I have nothing against anybody that does that profession, but I was so taken aback. Cause I was like, first of all, lady, I've never been paid for sex. I have never had a one night stand. I haven't had many sexual partners. You just met me like, right. She like completely just threw it in my face. But then at the end of the session, she said, oh, I know what your, your secret is. You're a sex and love addict. And that was the journey. We did the 40 questions. Um, Some of them are in my book, but you can go online and look up 40 self-diagnosed sex and love addict questionnaire and they'll pop up. They're great questions. And I fill those out and you got to read chapter three to see how many yeses I got, but it was a lot. Let's just say it was a lot. Um, But they say, if you get more than five yeses, this might be a problem. And it's questions like, are you always looking for someone to complete you? If it does your life feel unbearable, if you're not in a relationship, have you had inappropriate sex with inappropriate people at inappropriate times? Do you find yourself switching back and forth between genders is one where you think, oh, be better with this person of the opposite sex. And then you pick somebody else. Like, so it's constantly searching for this, a magical person that's going to complete us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like constantly thinking, oh, the grass is greener over there. It's going to mm-hmm. be better when I think that's like a really triggering phrase is like, it's going to be better when this, it's yeah. going to be better when I'm here. Like it's going to be better in Europe. It's get it right. And like, that's, that's not, it's not the yeah. answer. <laughs> well, that's a big part of it. The fantasy addiction, because it's this fantasy that we are all thinking once we get, then we'll, we'll be right. And it's like, no, the whole point of this work 
And the reason I wrote the book is like, you are complete just as you are right now. I am not broken. There is nothing wrong with me. I just didn't get the tools to have healthy relationships because my parents didn't model that for me. And I always thought I was just broken or like missing something. And I had to find that other piece of me. And it's like, no, I wasn't broken. I just didn't have the tools. They should teach it in school. I wish they would teach about sex and love addiction in school. Like, because that's what I found doing this work. That's what I found at the end of the book um, when I'm writing about this character, Roxanne, based on me, is that she found herself. So now if you take away my career, I'll be okay. If you take away, I'm married now, which is insane to say, but if you take away my husband, if he he leaves me, I will be okay. Nothing outside of me completes me anymore. Mm -hmm. And let me get this straight. Like I still get affected. I still get bummed out. If I don't get something, I still have bad days. I still cry when I get rejected, but I, it doesn't like drown me. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think you know, Hollywood definitely breeds sex and love addiction, right? It's a bunch of people that love to be other people that love to be in fantasy, that love to role play, that love to like fall in love. I mean, one of the main reasons I became an actor is love, love movies, you know, a romance scenes. My favorite movie growing up was Romeo and Juliet. So that will tell you, like, I'm obsessed with romance. So I think it breeds that it breeds insecurity because there is so much rejection. It breeds always saying, Oh, when I get that next job, when I get that next, you know, billboard, I'm going to feel this way. So I think it makes it more difficult, but, but here's the thing. I go to other cities and I go to meetings of sex and love addiction in other cities. And, you know, my first meeting I went to, there was 30 people and it was every race, every sexuality, every, ethnicity. It was, you know, a janitor, an A-lister, a a school mom, a stay-at-home mom. It was literally all walks of life. So you can go to any city and it doesn't matter what career you have. It's breeding sex and love addicts. Yeah. I mean, society is like you said, and now we're, we're breeding it from a young age. Like it's, it's going to be a really, like it's, it's already a big thing, but it's going to get bigger. Yeah, I told you it's an epidemic. And then the porn addiction part of it, because a lot of sex and love addicts are addicted to porn because it's that breeds fantasy, right? So if you see porn too much, especially at a young age, it desensitizes your sexuality. So what's happening now is a lot of young boys are coming into the program saying, I can't find partners. I can't, you know, sustain my sexual drive. I have unrealistic expectations of somebody and all that. So it's, it's amplifying even worse. I, the, the porn addiction is a really interesting one to me. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all really interesting, but like the porn especially is because sometimes like, I I know that a lot of men will Mm -hmm. use porn to masturbate and then like, and it's less common with women and women and women. There's a lot of women. Absolutely. (laughs) But I think it's, I think it's more common maybe. Um, or maybe it's just like, you have to search further to get like the porn that you're interested in. At least that's like my, my thing with the porn is like, I don't know, like this doesn't do it for me. This doesn't do it for me. Cause it's usually from the male gaze, right? Yes. 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 It's mainly from the male gaze. Let's be honest. It's, it's, it mainly is, but you know, I know a lot of women that are addicted to porn and they then think they have to act like the porn. So mm-hmm. they, it's even putting this unrealistic expectations on how they perform and how they look. So it's this deadly combination. And yes, it, when you look at porn at a young age, 
you don't realize that that's fantasy. That's actually acting. It's not real. And so these young minds are desensitized of what reality looks like. So by the time they have their first kiss, their first hand holding, the first person they have a crush on, it's, it's so desensitized. It's so, it's, it's so not heightened like the the porn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think it's like a, like reality that almost doesn't measure up to it? It's that's exactly it. Like the fantasy of porn becomes the reality. And the reality is actually the fantasy. It switches. Yeah. Cause like, Mm -hmm. there's so much excitement and so much going on. And then like, I can't imagine not getting like those butterflies when like, you know, your first kiss or your first handhold, just because like, you've been so desensitized. Like that's, that's tragic to me. Like that's so, yeah, it's taking away your human experience and replacing it with, yeah, this fake setting. I know. And it's getting even worse. I just did a whole study about, you know, virtual reality that's happening on top of it because they're saying, you know, that they're even thinking about doing the porn on virtuality. I think they've already started it. And it's just like, oh my God, we're going to have a bunch of, especially young boys because it's, they see porn as young as six years old. So especially young boys, they're just, they're just cut off from it. Yeah. So that, and I have a young son, I have a four-year-old. So believe me, being a recovered sex and love addict, I am very, very protective of what he sees because I saw things way too early. Listen, like I said, I, my favorite movie was Romeo and Juliet. I saw that at five years old. And I remember thinking when Michael White's butt, it's an old movie people, but Michael White (laughs) had this really cute butt, Romeo. And I was like, oh, that's a nice butt. Like I had that thought at like five, like, ooh, that's a nice butt. And then the other thing I remember from that movie is that these two young, you know, lovers were willing to give up their entire life and to be together. They're willing to poison each other and stab themselves. Like, yes, I, I, that was what it was. So I was like, oh my God, to find my person, they have to be willing to stab themselves or drink some poison or something. Like that's how much they have to. So at that young of age, that movie, which is very PG 13, really affected me. And, and it took me a long time when I was going through my withdrawal of sex and love addiction, when I was crying every day for nine months that I looked back and I tracked it and it was like, oh my God, that is the ideal relationship. And now when I break it down, it's like, wait a minute, these two are like 14 years old. They just met each other less than 24 hours. They sleep together. Their two families hate each other. There was already a murder between them. And then they're going to go drink some poison because, and then stab each self when the other one dies. It's insane. It's like, insane. Think about it. It's it insanity. is so insane. Like that, like, yeah. Cause it teaches you, you're so right. Like it teaches you your be all and end all is to be in like a yeah. crazy relationship. And like, now that you're talking about this, I'm like, wow. Yeah. I was like probably a little addicted to love. Like I was definitely, uh, everybody is welcome yeah. to the club. Everybody yeah. is. Don't worry. You're one of us. <laughs> right. Like that. Be all no, and all, like say, it's, it has to be this like yeah. crazy romance. Like, and like, once you get a stable relationship, that's happy and healthy, you're like, but there's less romance in it. It's like, yeah, that's just normal love. It's just not, no, like- that's, that's real love. The Mm -hmm. other, like we, and as love addicts and just society in general, we attach and put meaning to like intensity. Intensity does not equal intimacy. 
That is not intimacy. And the roller coaster of a relationship is not stability. It is not sustainable. And you will drive yourself crazy if that's what you're looking for. And then, of course, like the more intimacy, it seems boring. And that's what that's the problem I had. I was like, wait, I can't flirt or intrigue or fall in love 24 seven how boring my life is going to be. And it's like, no, there's this deeper level of intimacy that most of us are afraid of. And Mm -hmm. that's the problem. We, we attach meaning to that, those butterflies. I tell anybody I work with now and my sponsees or people that even read my book, I said, the number one thing is if you feel those butterflies with somebody, it's actually not a good thing. You should probably run the other way because (laughs) If that's what you're chasing, if that's like what you're attaching to, not the actual person, it's going to fade quickly and it's going to fade fast and you're going to progressively find worse partners after it. It's a progressive disease. It gets worse and it's not curable. Sex and love addiction is not curable, just like alcoholism. It's treatable, but it's not curable. Like today, after 12 years of recovery, I go to a meeting every day. I go to a meeting every night. I, I work with sponsees. I work with people. I'm of service in my community of sex and love addicts, which is huge. In America, I think there's 38 million people that are sex and love addicts and 35% of them are women. And that statistic was in 2017. And I'm telling you, the communities, it's blown up. So how do you <laughs> you're like, totally like, oh, oh, this is crazy. Um, it's just this whole hidden. Yeah. It's definitely like a secret. It's, it's a very, unfortunately well-kept secret. And-, and here's the thing. I shouldn't be breaking my, my anonymity. A lot of people in my program, I'm an old timer in the program. There's not a lot of sobriety. Um, but a lot of people did not want me to break my anonymity. Uh, it's, it's not, you're not supposed to talk about sex and love addiction. Like you can talk about alcohol or drug addiction or even eating addictions or gambling, or there's a lot of stigma and shame, especially with women in this addiction. And that's why I was like, listen, if I'm not going to talk about it and I'm seeing all these people suffering around me, then who's going to do it? So that's why I wrote the book was to help other people understand this addiction in an easy way where you talking to you, you could go, oh my God, I used to do that. Oh my God. I went back to that toxic relationship. I was looking for this magical person to complete me and it never was happening, you know? So that's why I did it. But yeah, it's, it's a gnarly disease that is very much a secret and there's so much shame around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, I definitely, like, I think my partner and I recently came to that um, conclusion of by ourselves, which was really like nice, but I, I felt like, again, I didn't really have the labels to like, to fully understand it and to like seek out other similar situations because we definitely both were like, yeah, this one yeah. is not as crazy. This one is, feels very stable and safe and wonderful. And not like we look back in the past and there was like just so much passion involved, but it was unstable. Unstable. Yeah. Completely unstable. And that's what we get addicted to. And that's what most of our society is addicted to. And that's not going to make you depressed. You know, a lot of sex and love addiction books or love addiction books, you read them and you like literally read a page and you want to throw it against the wall. So I wrote a book that's like a movie. Anybody can read it and you'll go, oh my God, I've done that. Oh my God, my friend's done that. And it takes you on this journey of this young girl about to turn 30 
you know, recovering in sex, a love addiction for a year. And that's why I wrote it to help people that go, why do I keep getting in bad relationships? Why is this relationship different? But now I feel like it's boring, but I want anybody, even my own mother to pick it up and go, okay, if I do these things, there's these rules, there's these, it's a guide how to get out of these toxic behaviors and these toxic relationships. And I really wanted it to be like a self-help book where it helps people heal and also takes them on a journey where they're entertained and they're laughing and they're like gasping that I've said the things that I've said in the book. I love that. So what are the, what are some of the top lessons Well, there's so many, but I think my favorite here, let me get it right now because it's right here. And it's just like my favorite, favorite one is chapter four, rule three. It says walk through the fire and let it burn. So it's this step where you can literally try to let go of every single thing outside of you that you're wanting to complete you, whether it, like I said, be a career, a person, family members, um, And then the other one I love is chapter six. It was brutal to write, but it's rule five, adult up. It's time to admit to your mistakes. So it's really looking back and like, where have I done wrong? What are my character defects? Where, what am I doing and bringing it into relationships where it's making my life unmanageable? Hey, Editing Chris here, just popping in to say a quick hello and thank you so much for being here. If you are enjoying this episode, please share it on social media or word of mouth. Give it to someone you think would enjoy it. Share the love. Use those cool rating buttons and the follow buttons and the subscribe buttons and the comment buttons, depending on where you are, what your interface looks like. Just just click some stuff. Let me know what you think. Um, what was your greatest takeaway? What did you like? What didn't you like? I'd love to hear it all. My contact details are in the show description. Reach out and let's chat. That's all for today. Short and sweet. And now back to the podcast. If I don't love myself, how am I ever going to love anybody else? So that one was a big turning point for me. And I have this beautiful scene in it where Roxanne marries herself. And it just, yeah, that, that chapter gets me every time. Mm, yeah. Well, cause like every relationship you ever have is a reflection of your own love for yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can, and you can see it. And I was t- actually having the same conversation, like last night that a friend of mine kept, like, she was seeing the pattern in herself, but she didn't know how to undo the pattern of always seeming to, you know, be attracted to people and to end up with people who didn't love themselves and didn't. And it was kind of like, well, that's, that's a reflection. That's, that's a mirror. Like you're always yeah, going to find whole- a mirror. Mm-hmm. That's exactly your friend needs to read my book because the number one thing for, you know, love, love and love and sex addicts um, is that you pick unavailable people mostly because you're unavailable. Mm -hmm. If you keep picking unavailable people are people you're trying to change or fix. It's because you need to change and fix yourself when you're unavailable. That's the whole point. So when someone says to me, I just can't find the right type of guy. There's no guy, girl, whoever you're attracted to. I'm like, you need to look inward because something in you keeps attracting that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I would love to talk about your relationship with your husband and how mm-hmm. that came about. You, you even said, you're like, I'm surprised I'm saying these words. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm so curious, like at what point in your like 12 year journey, did you all of a sudden, like, or not all of a sudden, but you know, like walk me through how, how that came to be. 
Well, a lot of that is going to be in second book. So I don't want to give too much of it away, but I will tell you, we had to redate each other because we've actually been together for 17 years. So I got in sex and love addiction while we were together. And we then had to redate and it was really, really tough. And I taught, I'm going to talk about that in my second book that's coming out, the follow-up to Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. And it's just like, I know now that no other person, like I said, is going to complete me and every human is flawed. And I always ask people, the most important thing is, would you, would you want to be friends with your partner? Would you want them to be your friend if you weren't with them? And that's one of the things I learned, you know, with this recovery is that my partner, I want to be friends with him. That I mean, it's your best friend, right? Like every, every post on, you know, social media, that's two people getting engaged is always like, oh, I'm so lucky. I get to spend the rest of my life with my best friend. Yes, completely. That's, that's incredible. 17 years. Like, did you, did you do like the classic trope of like, you know, walking in and pretending you didn't know each other? Like when you're redating? <laughs> no, we actually, it's so funny. We, you know, we still stayed together while I was in my first year of recovery. We didn't sleep together. You know, we didn't have sex or anything. So we really went through it and he had to allow myself to do my own growth and be willing to, you know, let each other go if it was for me to get better. So he knew that he was in recovery already. He has 33 years in AA. um, So he understands that it was never about him. He could be the most perfect partner. And and if I wasn't complete myself, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's, that's such a good perspective that, you know, if, if he understands addiction in that way, like that's, that could be so powerful that all of a sudden there's that like common understanding and you're really able to relate to each other. So, so I guess we've talked a lot about the, the love side, but I guess the sex and love is combined and, but is there, is there a side that's more of a sexual addiction, um, in terms of having it be a certain way? Like, I don't know, have you ever seen, um, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag, you know, where she's, she's addicted to it because she's addicted to like the way that like, it's almost this dance between two people that, the way she describes it is so shocking to me that like, I'd never thought about it that way that, you know, she doesn't actually like the sex. She's just likes the human social dance that goes between it. Like, will they, won't they, and all this stuff. And so like, do you resonate with that at all? Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is the sex is just, it's like I said, it's the currency. It doesn't actually mean that much. It's just a way to control and manipulate a person is use your sexuality. But yeah, it's a whole, the whole dance of like the chase. When is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? The buildup, the anticipation is the high. It's not the actual like sexual act always. So that's why you can be a sex and love addict and still not chase like the orgasm, what they say, you know, but it's, you can use your sexuality to manipulate another person to get what you want, which is attention, validation, flirting, you know, acting like they love you or whatever. So yeah, it's all part of it. It's all part of that dance. Have you been able to step away from that in your current sex life to like, kind of, yeah, to, to recognize those patterns and almost like relearn how to do it from like an intimacy standpoint? 
Yes, that was the whole gist. And that's what I have to write about in the next book, which is so uncomfortable. But like, <laughs> yeah, but know how to have real intimacy and what that looks like. And it's so different than what society and movies and television teach us. Mm-hmm. And I think they should have like, what does real intimacy look like in school so that it can teach you to have realistic expectations and how to get deeper with your sexuality, with love, because I was taught and was modeled. Like if you have sex with someone, you don't have to love them. And if you love someone, I then didn't know how to have sex with them because it was too intimate. You know, it was my mm-hmm. mind and my body and my emotions. And it was easier to put on a mask is what I say, you know, put on that, whatever society puts on us and then go out into this world and, and be, you know, not completely connected to another person. Cause listen, underneath all of this is a fear of intimacy is a fear of abandonment is a fear of not being loved is low self-worth. And I had all those things, but on the outside, I look like this person that had it all together that, you know, perfect person on the outside, but on the inside, I was just like a shell of a human. Yeah, no, those, those different fears, I think will definitely hit some people's bells, right? Like when you, when you call it like a fear of intimacy, it's all of a sudden like, oh, this applies to me, right? Like that'll, Mm -hmm. like, there's always a word that strikes somebody in the right way that all of a sudden this now applies to you. Like you can hold it at arm's length and you can just look at it from like a third party being like, oh, that's really interesting. That's not really for me. I don't Mm -hmm. identify that way. And then all it takes is like the right identifying word. And it just penetrates through it all. And oh, all of a sudden you're part of the we discussion. Yeah. And then the other side that I don't talk a lot about in the book, but I am going to is the love anorexia side. So then if you've been in a relationship and you've been hurt or it didn't work out, you then shut down. I mean, you know, those people that don't date for years and years or, you know, or you stop having sex in long-term relationships because you, you become anorexic. So that's the other side. It's like you act out and then you close off because it's too much. So that's another side people don't even talk about. Yeah. Sex, sex anorexia. What a term. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Love heavy. anorexic too, Love, where you yeah. can't, where you can't even be in relationship with people because you're so terrified of them abandoning you. So you almost become a hermit. Being so afraid that you just don't do it. It's like yeah. being so afraid to have an accident that you don't go out into the world. Yeah. Or you don't get on an airplane, yeah. you know, you don't get on an airplane because you're afraid it's going to crash. It's the same thing. You don't get into a relationship because let's, let's be honest. Humans are hard. Humans are, it's crazy when you deal with another human because you're triggering them. They're triggering you. People say things a certain way. They go into situations where they're bringing their baggage from their past. Don't even talk about family trauma behind it. You know, our trauma in general, sexual trauma, trauma, all of that is tied into this addiction. So you're walking out in the world, dealing with other people that are wounded. So it's like two wounded people dealing. And then you keep picking the wounded people because that's all you're used to, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's this vicious cycle. So no wonder a lot of people in my program, after they get rid of acting out sexually and fantasy and all that stuff, they then swing to the other side to anorexia. Because, and then the whole point is to get the pendulum back in the middle where you're not high or low in relationship. You just stay neutral. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely 
triggers a thought of a lot of people who see it. Like there is a time to be on your own and to process things and to mm-hmm. really come into yourself. But at the same time, if you want to learn about how to be in a relationship and still be yourself, you've got to be in a relationship. Like you can't oh, yeah. learn this theoretically. Right. And like, it's that right. Like you can't starve yourself and you can't go too far, but like, you still got to be part of that. Cause otherwise you're not learning. You're just kind of existing. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people that are in sex and love addicts anonymous, if they're not in relationship and they say they're sober after what, 15 years, a lot of times we have to say to them, but now you have to go out into the world because you're truly not sober until you evolve yourself in another human being and use those tools. It's easy to stay sober in sex and love addiction when you're by yourself because you're not dealing with anybody else, but you have to walk out into this world and be in relationship with others. I'm not just even talking about love. I'm even talking about family members and friendships. A big thing in this program, and I talk about it a lot, is letting go of friendships in this book. You know, Roxanne has to let go of some really bad friendships, people she didn't show up for that didn't show up for her, you know, non-equal friendships, family members that it was very toxic. So it hits on every relation. It's This is a relationship disease. Yeah, and those are the toughest because that's what you need the most in mm-hmm. life. I mean, that was the toughest withdrawal for me. I remember this darkest moment and I didn't write this in the book, so I'm sharing it, but it's like, I remember I was having a horrible day and I sat in my car and I called my girlfriend and I was like, Hey, I'm having a horrible day. And I kept her on the phone for 30 minutes, just complaining. I don't even know what it was about. And she didn't make me feel better. And I hung up the phone with her and I called another friend after her. And I did that four times. Oh my gosh. And when I got off the phone and I realized I didn't feel better, I go, oh my God, out loud in my car, like a kookadoo. I was like, oh my God, I just used those four people to make me get out of a bad mood and feel better. I just used my friends and it didn't work. And whoa, I'm using everybody in my life, not just my love partner, everybody in my life I use. Cause I'm raping them of their energy. I'm keeping them hostage on the phone with me for 30 minutes each trying to make console me and make me feel better. It was like such a big moment for me where it's like, Oh my God, I use everybody. And, and so how would you, cause sometimes, I mean, what if somebody's sitting at home thinking, mm-hmm. Oh my God, do I use people? Right? Like if you have that question in your head, did I just use somebody or like, am I afraid that I just like mm-hmm. manipulated this relationship or like, how would you tell people to try to like realize that trigger point? Is it that, you know, there was just no reciprocity? Was it that like, you didn't give them a chance to hear you? Was it that like you called, like, was, do you think that the root of it was that you, you called to make yourself feel better? Is that it? Like you, yeah, I use them as a drug. I mean, I use my friends as a drug. Like if I'm in a bad mood or I need a a lift up or a cheer up instead of being self-sufficient and doing it internally within myself, I was reaching outside of myself. And the problem is you have to really look at why did I call this person? Was it? Yes, you can get support, but if you're obsessively trying to feel better and using other people, that's a huge sign of this addiction. And another huge sign I have to mention to you that I haven't is if there's any drama in your life, if you have any drama in any of your relationships, whether it be family, friends, or lovers, this is something you should probably look at. Mm, Yep. Because there's no drama in my life. 
There's yeah. nobody in my life that doesn't show up for me. There's nobody in my life that, you know, I use or they use me. There's nobody in my life. And listen, you're going to have miscommunications with people, but like drama for the sake of drama. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I still remember I was like 12 and one of my, I, I'll call her a close friend, but like, I mean, that relationship ended very closely after that, where it was like, they, they literally said the words, I love drama. I want drama in my life. Yeah. They gravitated towards those people who were taking time bombs, who there was always something going on. So they could go and like either live vicariously through them or be part of it or help right? them out. Mm-hmm. There's those rescuers. That's a huge part of this addiction. The codependency rescuer where I can fix this person. I can help them. I can, you know, heal them with friends and lovers. And it's like, no, you can't, you got to just stay in your lane and heal yourself. Cause that's what we do. We go out and try to like fix somebody for them to be who we want them to be, but that's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Or the, the people who are there, they're, they always find themselves in relationships where they're, yeah, they end up fixing them or something. And it's, it's probably because they need to fix themselves and they just don't Mm want to do that work. It's easier to try to fix somebody else. Yeah. So that's a part of it is that codependency is woven into the love addiction side. So it's, it's really hard to say if one person has this, because listen, for me, I only have a couple aspects of each side, but, but the next person has a completely different characteristics. And that's why I tried to make the book where anybody can read it. It's like every characteristic is put in there. That's why it's not a memoir. I didn't make it just about me. I made it about like an overall image of what sex and love addiction looks like in front family, friends, and lovers. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of memoirs that are potentially a little more egocentric than they could have been. Right. That like, ultimately the point of writing it is to write about what you know. And so if you can spin a little tale of fiction into there to give it more like yeah. To make it less about like, I want to tell you my things. It's like, no, I'm writing about this character and you can take it yeah. all out and put it as a third person. I love that. Especially in Hollywood, because there's a lot of inside scoop, <laughs> let's just say, and I will get sued. So what I did is I t- switched around times, places, people, I gave them nicknames like cool girl, superstar, suits, tattoo girl, glam girl. I gave those kind of names. So Nobody will know who I'm writing about. So it's like a fun game of like, where's Waldo kind of like, who is she talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it was fun making it not me because when I first wrote it, I wrote it in 45 days and it was a memoir. But when I was doing the rewrites with my editor, I just said, okay, this is me, but it's not me. And all these other stories came in of my years of recovery, helping other people, their stories, bits and pieces, dreams, a a dream was put in there. And I was just like, okay, this is not me anymore, but it's somebody else. And that's where the name Roxanne from the police song, Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light. So I was like, everybody's got some Roxanne in them. Everybody's done something they're not proud of, or something was done to them. They're not proud of, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. It's the police that inspired that name. (laughs) Yeah. It, It came on Pandora when I was writing, I was like, oh my God, that's her name, Roxanne. And I just went with it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not in like a, cause I mean, the main storyline behind that song is like the red light is like the red light district, right? Like she's like yeah, soliciting yeah. sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But Mm. think about it when your friends go out, it's like you're mostly soliciting sex when you're, you know, going on a date, you're still kind of soliciting sex when you're putting yourself in those positions, you know, and you're putting your best foot forward and you're wearing a mask of a high class prostitute. So I just thought it was the perfect song for the character. Absolutely. I agree. That's so good. You're wearing the mask of a high class prostitute. That is, that is a cutting deep sentence like that. Yeah. Right. Yes. Believe me. I felt that one. I was never going to go back, but I knew when I was sitting on that couch and my ass was on the fire with Dr. Kath, I, I, her name's Dr. Kath in the book. I just knew if I didn't sit there and take it, that I was never going to change. And then I I could be dead, honestly, the things I was doing. and, And when you read the book, you'll see, I literally could have died. And I've had friends that have died of this addiction. I've had friends in jail for this addiction. I spoke downtown in Los Angeles for two and a half years at the, at the jail, the women's jail downtown. And every single woman was in there for sex and love addiction. She, you know, sold for her partner, sold drugs, robbery, murder, you name it. Wow. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the Bonnie and Clyde relationship is really not mm-hmm. something to aspire to. No, it's not. Please don't. Please just go get help. <laughs> Honestly, and this is the type of help you need. If you didn't know, now you know. Now you know. Oh, man, thank you so much. This has been very illuminating. And yeah, just thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing it in book form and continuously in podcast form. And uh, did you wanna, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast? Oh yeah. I'm so proud of it. It's called secret life podcast. And it's about my whole concept is tell me your secret and I'll tell you mine. So every episode I have some guest on revealing a secret, whether it be a dark, dark secret, like my first anonymous one was she shot herself in the chest with a shotgun and survived because she couldn't reach perfectionism and walking through that and where she is today to funny ones where you lie in resumes or you steal food from Whole Foods because you hate Jeff Bezos. Like, so their secrets <laughs> run the gamut. It's all walks of life, every gender, sexuality, ethnicity. We're on our 92nd episode and we're just really, really proud of it. My husband and I do it together. We do it to be of service. We started it during the pandemic just to be of service to other people and to give our our stories and our recovery and that you are not alone. Underneath every secret, those kill us. But underneath them is that we're afraid we're alone and no one is like us and we're all the same. So I interview mostly anonymous people. I do have some celebrity people that come on, but mostly we change the name. And it's really about being a voice for the listener and that they're not alone. And whatever you've been through, someone else has been through that or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's everywhere. Secret life podcast. I'm really, really proud of it. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And if people want to follow along, find your book, find you on social media, where would they go for that? The best place is Instagram at the Brianne Davis. I answer all my DMs. I send information. If you need it, go to secretlifenovel.com. It's all my articles I write for Cosmo and all over the place in my interviews and you can get the book there, signed copy, or you can go to Amazon. It's called secret life of a Hollywood sex and love addict and secret life podcast. And yeah, I'm so grateful to come on and share my experience, strength and hope. And I hope it helps somebody. 
And with that, we come to the end of this week's episode of Reclaim Your Radiance. Thank you so much for joining this week. I hope you enjoyed your time with us and came away with something truly valuable. If you want more and simply cannot wait until next week, come join us online. Reach out on Instagram at Hell of a Hall or on TikTok at Reclaim Your Radiance to connect. We also have a Facebook community with the name Reclaim Your Radiance, where we talk about all sorts of topics related to the podcast and tons that aren't. It's a community of like-minded souls who want to dive deeper into these things and keep the conversation going. Or maybe you're more of a tips and tricks straight to your inbox kind of person. Sign up for our mailing list to receive bonus content and stay in touch with what's happening in the world of Reclaim Your Radiance, including retreats, self-love courses, and more. Stay tuned. Head on over to the episode notes in the show description to find those links, and I hope to see you online soon. All right, everyone, until next week, stay radiant.